Top stories of the week. George Christensen is allowed to continue being George Christensen. Also, Boris Johnson Djokovic's the BBC. And terrorism is still a thing, apparently? This is News Weekly, and I just got my booster, so fuck you, Omicron. Hello, I'm Sammy Shah, and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. Sure, he's an anti-vaxxer, but he's our anti-vaxxer news now. The Australian government has proven that it has zero tolerance for anti-vaxxers after finally sending tennis superstar Novak Djokovic home. As the tennis star touched down in Belgrade, finally home following deportation from down under. During the court hearings, the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, who has previously refused to use his godlike powers to grant the Biluila family refugee status or to release the refugees who've been detained in the same hotel as Djokovic for up to nine years, made it clear why he was using his authority to cancel the tennis star's visa. In court, the minister argued Djokovic's presence here was a problem because he may create a risk of strengthening the anti-vaccination sentiment of a minority of the Australian community, given his well-known stance on vaccination. So there, it's because he's a famous anti-vaxxer and the federal government don't want to encourage anti-vax sentiments in Australia. And if Djokovic wants to reverse his three-year ban, he just needs to get vaccinated. An option not usually made available to people evicted from the country, but then we aren't all able to hit a ball with precision, which somehow makes you more valuable than other people. Alternatively, if Djokovic wants preferential treatment, he could just become a parliamentarian, especially one whose vote the government needs. Then there's all kinds of patience and tolerance available. Also against the medical advice, refusing to vaccinate children against COVID, something that's been suggested by the government's own MP, George Christensen. Scott Morrison calling out his views as dangerous, but with his vote crucial on the floor of parliament, stopping short of taking action. So what exactly did the Prime Minister say? Don't listen to George Christensen. He's not a doctor. He, he can't tell you what to do with vaccines. I listened to Professor Paul Kelly. Scott Morrison is right, of course. George Christensen is not a doctor. So you shouldn't take medical advice from him. Things you can take expert advice from George Christensen on are the best flights to Manila. In just four years, Nationals MP George Christensen made 28 trips to the Philippines, spending nearly 10 months in Manila. Taking 11 weeks of annual leave on taxpayer funds. But doesn't dispute he's been on leave for up to 11 weeks a year. Spending that taxpayer money at strip clubs in Manila. Government MP George Christensen's extensive travel to Southeast Asia is under fresh scrutiny tonight, with claims he was a regular big spender at a strip club in a red light district. And being a big fucking hypocrite. Mr Christensen, who is a committed Christian and stands on a family values platform, spent almost 300 days in the Philippines while collecting his government wage. So why isn't Scott Morrison taking a more hardline approach against the Minister for Sex Tourism? Australia is a free country. We can't go around locking people up for what they say as Australians. I'm sure the media wouldn't be suggesting we're doing that. Um, he, he, he is allowed to speak his mind, 
but Australians shouldn't be listening to it. That's an open-minded approach to free expression and tolerance for differing points of view, especially coming from the same guy who in 2018 threatened to punish local councils for taking a differing approach to the January 26 celebrations. And he's threatened councils that attempt to change Australia Day events, saying he'll strip them of their right to host citizenship ceremonies. The problem is, Scott Morrison seems reluctant to actually hold George Christensen to account for his behaviour, which includes telling parents not to get their kids vaccinated. That, that is within your power to do, to kick him out of the party room. Why don't you do that, given that he holds dangerous views in your words? Well, I think the more important thing to do is just simply is to say that his views are not the government's views. They have in no way whatsoever influenced government policy at all. And uh, the greater attention people give to his views, which is not the government, then I can only encourage those to simply ignore him. George Christensen is part of the government though. So now we have the government telling us to ignore a major government parliamentarian. So if we ignore him on this, should we be okay choosing to ignore other members of the federal government on other health issues based on our personal preferences? Because what exactly is the point of a federal government handing down health advice and vaccine mandates then if who we listen to is entirely limited to Scott Morrison's personal judgment? A judgment that isn't the most consistent or, you know, factually accurate. The, the Novak Djokovic case has raised another issue. He was kept in a Melbourne hotel that also holds asylum seekers that have been denied visas. There are refugees in that same hotel who have been detained for more than nine years and taxpayers fork out millions of dollars to keep them in limbo. How is that acceptable? Well, um, the, the specific cases, Ben, I mean, it's, it's not clear that, um, it, it, to, my not, to my information, that someone in that case is actually a refugee. They may have sought asylum and been found not to be a refugee and have chosen not to return. On Monday, you said that those held in the Park Hotel in Melbourne were not refugees. Uh, most of them are, 25 of them are. Do you apologise for that mistake? Or if, you, uh, if you're now aware that that is not the case, is it appropriate that some of those people have been held in detention for more than eight years? The suggestion that I said they were all not found to be refugees is not true. That's not what I said. It was a question in a radio interview. I, I, I answered it to the best of my knowledge at that time. And in, in, in quite a number of cases, um, that was indeed the case. It's, it's not clear that, um, in, in, to, my not, to my information, that someone in that case is actually a refugee. Licence to fee news now. Things are looking bleak for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who can't even leave his house without being assailed by what sounds like the ghost of a Victorian newsboy. His continued failure to account for a party has lost him support with his own party. So much so that everyone's threatening to leave his party for the other party. Which is basically what happened to me in 8th grade when I threw a birthday party on the same day as Usman Khawaja's birthday party and everyone went there instead because he had a fucking swimming pool. Former Red Wall MP Christian Wakeford defecting to Labour sitting behind his new leader after giving up on Boris Johnson. Scores of his former Tory colleagues contemplating giving up on the PM too. But Boris Johnson isn't going down without a fight. 
His first weapon is his ability to spin rhymes like Dr. Seuss. When the history of this pandemic comes to be written, and the history of the Labour Party comes to be written, and believe me, they are history and will remain history, Mr Speaker, it will show, it will show, it will show that we delivered while they dithered. All right, calm down, Slim Shady. And if that's not enough, the sinister Prime Minister can always distract the public with something else. After all, it worked for Scott Morrison when he tossed Novak Djokovic at us so we'd forget about the shortage of rapid antigen tests for a few days. And since there's still some time for the Wimbledon and with no tennis players on hand to sacrifice, here's his culture secretary Nadine Dorries gutting the BBC. The global cost of living is rising. And this government is committed to supporting families as much as possible during these difficult times. Given that climate, we had to think very carefully about imposing potential increase on the TV licence. Every organisation around the world is facing the challenge of inflation. I simply do not believe that those responsible for setting household bills should instinctively reach into the pockets of families across the country for just a little more every year to cover those costs. So today I am announcing that the licence bill fee will be frozen for the next two years. Three quarters of the BBC's income, about £3.75 billion, comes from the licence fee, which is currently £159 per household. Now, there's definitely problems with the licence fee, the most obvious one being that it isn't scaled according to personal income. But to freeze it entirely in a bid to help people with the cost of living may sound great, but it's not entirely honest. In the same speech, Nadine Dory says, The BBC has been entertaining and informing us for a hundred years, and I want it to continue to thrive and be a global beacon in the UK and in the decades to come. But this is 2022, not 1922. Nadine Dory's wishing it was still 1922 makes sense when you realise she's against gay marriage, sex education, abortion counselling services and advocated for a return of blasphemy laws in the UK. Unfortunately for the BBC, none of its content can live up to the high standards set by her time on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The public have decided the first person they want to leave I'm a Celebrity 2012 is Nadine. Well, she was one of the jungle's most controversial campmates. She threw herself into camp life, eating camel toe and ostrich anus and enduring four minutes in an underground coffin full of critters. So now British taxpayers can look forward to a BBC that runs advertisements and fills its content with reality TV shows that appeal to Nadine's voting base. No one has yet brought up, by the way, the meeting last November between Boris Johnson and Rupert Murdoch, after which Johnson's sister, who was also in attendance, quoted Murdoch as saying, quote, Boris, you've got to get rid of the BBC, it's eating my lunch. If it's really all about savings, maybe the Brits can decide whether they're really getting value for money from the £1.29 per person they're paying for members of the royal family to hang out with people like Jeffrey Epstein. What is this, 2018? News now. Many experts have pointed out that the Omicron virus might be evidence of the pandemic winding down, with the death rate caused by the latest variant being far lower than previous iterations of COVID-19. 
And if you need further evidence of things starting to return to normal, a Pakistani-British Al-Qaeda terrorist took hostages in a synagogue in Texas. This morning, safe and sound, four hostages unharmed. The gunman police say took them captive, dead. An 11-hour standoff finally brought to a close with a loud bang. Rescue teams rushing into the synagogue, surrounded by law enforcement on every level. Can someone tell Islamic extremists it's 2022? We have other shit to deal with, like a global pandemic, imminent economic collapse, global warming, and a fucking tsunami. We don't need to add random jihadists believing in anti-Semitic conspiracies to our list of shit to deal with. The terrorist, it turns out, suffered from mental health issues, which presupposes the idea that other terrorists are perfectly sane. Just four months ago, Akram had been mourning the loss of his brother, who had died from Covid. He was well known on these streets, he had a criminal record for low-level offences, and he'd been given an ASBO for causing a nuisance at the magistrate's court. But we've also been told he was reported to the police over concerns about his extremist views. So what exactly motivated this man to fly across the world and attack some Texan Jews? FBI negotiators described him during the siege as being emotionally unstable. And on the live feed, you could hear him extremely agitated. He was often repeating himself. His family say that in the past, he had spoken of wanting to die. They say that he had referred to not just global issues such as the imprisonment of Muslims, but also things closer to home which had been agitated, which had been agitating him. For example, he was extremely distressed when his house was repossessed following his divorce. We're extremely lucky. No innocent people were killed in this attack and all the hostages escaped. Now all that's left is for us to decide whether this is an Islamic extremism story of an Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorist or a standard American story of a mentally ill man with a gun. The terrorist attack in Lahore, Pakistan on Thursday, however, which killed three people and injured 20, you won't hear about at all in the news, because that story apparently doesn't matter. It's the end of the world and I feel like shit news now. Adding to the shit show that is just the first few weeks of 2022, here's a tsunami. Well, the world has seen and felt the shockwaves of a massive underwater volcano on the doorstep of the Pacific island of Tonga. It's triggered a tsunami that's engulfed the island nation, waves reaching as far as Australia and Alaska. Tonight, there are reports Tonga is struggling with toxic air and contaminated water. Communications are crippled, leaving relatives in Australia desperate for news. And there's a warning another eruption could happen at Anytime. If reality is indeed a simulation, someone's playing this video game with the difficulty setting on extreme. So far, three people have been confirmed killed by the waves that washed over Tonga and the destruction is still being assessed. Oh, and rescue and aid efforts from Australia and New Zealand have been minimal because Tongans are worried about aid workers bringing COVID to the island. And let me remind you, it's still January. Next month, Meteor strikes, the rise of a vengeful and malicious artificial intelligence, and probably werewolves, I guess. A silver lining to the dark clouds news now. And finally, some light entertaining news to make you feel better. Former Attorney General Christian Porter and his defamation lawyer have been ordered to pay more than $430,000 to cover the legal costs of Joe Dwyer, a friend of the woman who accused Mr. Porter of raping her more than 30 years ago. So, 
you know, at least that's happened. Hey, look, let's just take our joys where we can get them, okay? Even if it's the miseries of others. That's all from this week's edition of Newsweek. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps with the ratings of the podcast. You can find the text edition of Newsweekly along with other content on my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Shah. Every little bit of money really helps me with this podcast and creating more content for you. Things I love to make, but I just need to pay my bills while doing them. Otherwise, I'll see you right back here next week on Newsweekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. 